Today on the Alt Goes Mainstream podcast, we have a guest who's seen virtually every evolution of the internet and financial services since the 1990s. Graham Jenkin is the co-founder and CEO of CoinList, the leading token issuance platform in the crypto space that has helped a large number of the top crypto projects by market cap get their earliest funding and customers with an initial token sale on CoinList. CoinList has played a critical role in the crypto ecosystem for early stage token projects from doing token issuances for Flow to Solana to Mina and more. Given the quality of projects that they work with from the earliest of days, it's no surprise that they've attracted millions of users to CoinList. They have over 5 million users on the platform. Graham's background and blend of consumer, engineering, design, and finance skills lends itself incredibly well to building CoinList. Prior to helping spin out CoinList from AngelList and co-founding the business, Graham was the COO and previously a UX engineer and designer at AngelList over a six and a half year period. Prior to AngelList, he led the redesign of the user interface of the world's most profitable online business, Google AdWords, where he also won the inaugural Google Great Manager Award. He also understands financial services innately well. He led bankofamerica.com to two Webby Awards. Graham's a fantastic operator with a clear vision for how to build special consumer businesses, and we're lucky to be investors in CoinList as they build a critical piece of crypto market infrastructure. Graham and I had a fascinating discussion on the evolution of crypto market infrastructure, how CoinList provides a critical service to both projects and investors, and the importance of Web 2.5 in a world that's transitioning from Web 2 to Web 3 by discussing how CoinList is building a centralized bridge to a decentralized world. What a great way to start this podcast. So thanks so much, Graham, for helping us enter the decentralized world with CoinList. Great to have you on the podcast. Graham, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Hey, Michael. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, glad to have you on. Finally. Finally. We made it. You're continuing the tradition of unicorn alts companies on this podcast. Oh, nice. Nice. Happy to keep up uh, appearances here. Thank you. <laughs> well, you're not just connected to one unicorn alts business, but you're connected to another one, an AngelList. And where I really want to start is your background, even before AngelList, because you have just such a fascinating background that I think is actually crucial to building the market infrastructure and on-ramp to consumer crypto. You led UX design and research for the most visited financial services site in the world at Bank of America. So that was way back when in the beginning of the internet era. So that's fascinating. You led the ads team at Google early, so you understand consumer marketing. You were the CEO at AngelList, built one of the biggest investment platforms. And now you're building CoinList, which is one of the biggest on-ramps into crypto for investors, people who are relevant to projects and helping them build community. Would, would love to hear your story and what you learned from those experiences that has informed you building CoinList. Yeah, I mean, actually, so I grew up in Australia and when I first started getting involved in web development, it was right at the start of things in the mid 90s. So I was doing a lot of work in politics back then. I was working with a third party, kind of similar to the Greens in the US, I helped them build their web presence. So I've got a little bit of politics, uh, a little bit of government policy, 
in addition to large fintech and, and big tech. And I think that definitely informed the path because crypto is really an amalgamation of a lot of these different things. It is like politics, government policy, and it is some kind of response to large fintech financial services. And it is like big distributed tech. And so it's a combination of all those things that I've uh, been involved with to, to some extent in the past. And, um, and it all shows up in crypto. That's why we love it. To that point, what makes you so excited about crypto? There's any number of things, but I think so much of what the mainstream focuses on with respect to crypto, which is the finance side, which is the financialization of everything, markets, number go up, number go down. So much of the mainstream is focused on that. And I think what is really exciting for me is that the set of technologies, it's really a completely new way of building, distributing, and running indefinitely software. Andreessen, I think, is famous for talking about how uh, software is going to eat the world. And I think decentralized software is going to eat software because these systems can run indefinitely. They're not necessarily managed by a corporation that may go out of business at some point. That makes this whole space unique. That's what I love about it. And that ends up being reflected in some of the projects we end up working with too. We're, I think way back when we got started, most of the projects that we were working with at, at Coinlist were Ethereum competitor layer ones. I think what's happened over time is that we've started to see more vertical specific applications or ecosystems being developed. And uh, a lot of those verticals map to what we saw with Web1, with the original evolution of the internet, whether it's communications, whether it's search, whether it's e-commerce, whether it's gaming, whether it's social. So a lot of those verticals, we're now seeing finance as well. We're now seeing attacked via crypto, and that's super exciting. One thing you bring up when you talk about crypto, you mentioned the financialization of everything. Something that's fascinating about crypto is it actually couples the growth or development of technology with the financialization of that. And those two things are combined together. Why did you decide to end up building something that's part of the financial market structure or finance business within crypto? And again, you have a background in big tech. You have a background in politics. You could have gone any which way. What about the concept of coupling financialization of technology with the development of technology itself has made you want to go that route? So, geez, I got a couple of answers to that. I don't know if this directly answers your question, but one of the things that we were talking about earlier was AngelList. And maybe this goes back to an origin story. So I'm really going to go off piste here. I'm actually not going to answer your question initially. But the way that I got into AngelList was through meeting Naval Ravikant, who's one of the founders of AngelList. And... I did that as I was exiting Google. I was in the process of leaving Google, just like every other fool in Silicon Valley, had my startup ideas, had pitch decks, started to, to meet angel investors and, and talk to them about some of those ideas. And one of the investors that I met through that process was Naval. So Naval's awesome, awesome guy, like super smart, very generous, but he also doesn't want to waste any time and doesn't suffer fools. And so I think he does, but certainly he's very direct. And so when I did my pitch with him, he was like, look, your ideas suck. Don't, don't do any of this stuff. 
just come and work for me. So he, he did this bait and switch. Come work for me. I'm building this platform. It's a startup for startups. I'll teach you everything I could teach you about how to pitch investors and the fundraising process. You can help me as a designer, engineer. You can help me build this platform. I, I, I don't know. I kind of felt like it was a good trade-off. So I jumped into AngelList. I didn't actually view myself as a startup groupie junkie coming out of a big tech company, but pretty quickly at AngelList. And I'm not sure if all of your listeners know what AngelList was doing originally, but AngelList was really meant to be a platform that connected early stage tech companies with communities of angel investors to really try to rapidly accelerate the process of raising capital. And AngelList got started around about the same time that Satoshi wrote the white paper, the global financial crisis, there was a dearth of capital in the markets. So it wasn't a lot of capital going into startups at that time. Uh, a lot of inefficiencies there. A lot of the advantages in terms of negotiation capabilities, negotiation and leverage was on the side of the investor relative to the entrepreneur. And Nivi and Naval, Babak Nivi, who's the other co-founder of Evangelist and, and Naval, they were very concerned about that. They thought that this is giving a little bit too much advantage to the investor relative to the entrepreneur. And the entrepreneurs are the ones that are really bringing their blood, sweat, and tears to try to build something out of nothing and advance tech and advance humankind. And, and so if they're disadvantaged in that process, then we need to do something about it. That's what the Angelist platform was really intended to do, was to try to level that playing field, first through education of those entrepreneurs through a blog called Venture Hacks, and then through the Angelist platform itself, which connected emerging startup companies with communities of angel investors. Through those introductions, checks would start to get written, and that would get the larger investors, the VCs, the ones that would lead a term sheet more active and really accelerated the process of, of raising capital. And I wasn't aware of any of this coming in. I was thinking, I'm going to join these guys. Val's going to teach me a bit about how to pitch. And then I'm going to go off and do my, my startup. But, you know, really quickly, just fell in love with what we're doing. We would bring entrepreneurs into the office and do some rough usability testing, have them use the product and uh, give us feedback. And as part of that process, you get to learn about this story and their background and what their hopes and dreams are. Pretty quickly, you realize that and these are really inspirational people and they've got a big vision for positive change in the world. And not all of them, there's definitely some people that want to flip a company really quickly, but most of the people that we ended up helping at AngelList had some kind of big vision for positive change in the world. And it becomes the thing that gets you out of bed every day to get in and try to help these people be successful and to do it at scale. So yeah, I just fell in love with it. And a lot of that carries through to CoinList. And again, this isn't directly answering your question, but the focus that we have, which tends to be on trying to find the best new emerging blockchain cryptocurrency projects, helping those teams be successful, helping them launch successfully, that's still very much part of our DNA and our passion and, and why it is we're here. And I don't even know if I answered any of your questions. No, it's okay. I think you you hit on the evolution of... The startup industry, number one, Angelus was an innovator in crowd or community capital raising. Coinlist is the next iteration of that as we get to something like crypto. I don't think there are coincidences in this world. Coinlist was spun out of Angelist. Right. When I hear you talk about the early days of Angelist, it feels like there are some similarities with how you've thought about the early days of Coinlist. Talk about that a little bit. It's very much about you know, trying to find the best new companies and 
helping to be successful. A lot of this, again, comes from Nivian Naval. The reason why we're doing any of this is that we believe that these technologies are going to be in some way, shape or form, they'll advance humankind. And I think over time, what we've decided or worked out is that the best way that we can try to accelerate that advancement is by finding the best companies and giving them all the tools to really push the boundaries of what technology can do, whether that's in a, a general sense, in a consumer internet sense, or in, in a blockchain cryptocurrency context. And that's very much how we think about things at, at Coinless. And, and by the way, there's a, there is a lot of roadblocks that get put up in front of entrepreneurs in, in trying to build something out of nothing, whether it's in a crypto context or, or otherwise. And a big part of what we're doing at CoinList as well as at AngelList is trying to identify those roadblocks, identify those friction points and smooth them out. A really good example of that in the AngelList context was the work that we did to help introduce the Jobs Act, where mm -hmm. folks from AngelList were collaborating with folks in Congress to help write various clauses of the Jobs Act. And we had a, a massive community effort to try to get investors, VCs, angels on board and communicating with their Congress people and senators to, to try to get support around the JOBS Act. That was really successful. The JOBS Act passed and that effectively introduced crowdfunding into the US. Crowdfunding was illegal. General solicitation was illegal, which just basically means letting the public know that you're raising money. That was illegal prior to that point. We ended up being heavily involved in the process of making that legal. And then that opened up a couple of avenues to CoinList, AngelList, as well as entrepreneurs in general. Also, that's part of the reason how we, why we launched Republic. Republic was obviously a crowdfunding platform and came out of the effort that AngelList, along with Ken, Ken Wynn from Republic, did in order to help the Jobs Act get passed. So the regulatory side ends up playing a, a, a massive role in all of this. And that's very much how CoinList got started. How we got started was by focusing on trying to run what we believed were and are compliant token sales, where we are certainly, in, at least for US participants, early on, we're running those sales as Reg D506C sales, which is accredited investor sales using a securities exemption, the, the Reg D506C accredited investor exemption. Some of the first sales that we ran, including Filecoin, used that approach in order to put those offerings out there. Now, things have changed over time, but certainly that's how we got started. So it's this combination of focus on the entrepreneur, trying to help entre entrepreneurs be successful, helping them connect with an investor community and to do it compliantly to keep the regulators relatively happy. That's the combo that got both companies moving. So the, the simplified version is that you're kind of similar to AngelList, but for the crypto world. For those who are less familiar with CoinList, put CoinList in the context of the broader crypto market infrastructure. Coinbase also lists projects tokens, as does CoinList. But what are some of the differences? Why does CoinList exist and who does it serve? We're working with projects at a stage where you know, no other platforms are working with them. We're working with them at an early stage, in most cases, before they've launched their mainnet. And so these assets are not listed anywhere else. When we run the token sale, there's usually some period of time after that issuance before the projects are listed on exchanges. So these assets, these sales are available on CoinList before they're available anywhere else. But the intent there for us is to help these networks launch 
with a large community of token holders, whether it's 10, 20, 50,000 token holders, all of whom have been you know, vetted, they're KYC'd, et cetera. These networks need to be decentralized. And when they launch, they want to have that large community of rabid network participants that are ready to help these networks be successful. And later, these assets get listed on Binance, Coinbase, or, or other platforms. So we're a little bit upstream of all of those platforms from a lifecycle standpoint. What that means is CoinList is serving a critical piece of the market infrastructure as you think about the life cycle of a project or even the life cycle of a trade or investment. You're giving people access to projects to help these projects get started before they get to a Coinbase or an FTX or a Binance or whatever and get listed for the masses to have access to. But there's still a lot of development that has to go on with the projects. And it it feels like there's a reason why a lot of these projects want to work with you. What are some of those reasons? Well, I hope there's plenty of reasons. I think the main thing right now is about having that community of 10, 20,000 token holders. I think a lot of these protocol teams, by the time that they're working with us, they're not necessarily hurting for capital. But what they lack is that large community of token holders. They may have a reasonable community on Discord or Telegram and such, but they may not necessarily be in the kind of tens of thousands. And also, we've got the infrastructure that helps them process the distribution of those tokens, both from a compliance perspective and then also the custody infrastructure. In most cases, not all. I think we end up, A, tapping a, a large market of early adopter crypto enthusiasts that they may not ordinarily be able to access. B, we have the infrastructure that allows them to run that token distribution efficiently and relatively smoothly. And I guess there is the overarching piece, which is that Coinless brand tends to be associated with high quality issuance, high quality projects, going right the way back to Filecoin. Other projects like Solana, Algorand, ICP, Mina have run their token sales or auctions on us. So I think there's, there's some you know, positive brand association there too. That's probably the third piece. So you mentioned you're getting access to these great projects early stage. There's some parallels to AngelList in the early days. And, and I think this is a more philosophical question, which is that early days of AngelList development and in the broader venture ecosystem, AngelList felt somewhat of a supplement to existing traditional venture capital. People would invest into companies on AngelList alongside the top VCs, the Sequoias, the Benchmarks, the Andreessen's, the Axels, et cetera. Over time, because of the technology that's been built, because of some of the regulation that you mentioned, unlocking access, and the evolution of venture capital in terms of community being such an important piece of this, AngelList has turned into somewhat of a supplement to existing VCs. I don't think they're going away, but in some sense is more of a disruptor, right? There are now micro VC funds being spun up. There are RUVs or roll-up vehicles that enable founders to bring in friends and it changes the complexion of a cap table. We're seeing crypto have community be such an important part of the creation of projects. Do you think that CoinList will undergo the same arc of evolution where CoinList features more and more in early stage rounds, just like an AngelList infrastructure features in early stage round relative to the more traditional venture capitalists, or in this case, crypto venture funds? Yeah, I hope so. I hope that happens. Um, Part of the concern that I have about the trajectory of protocol team fundraising right now is that 
in the earlier days, say 2016, 2017, when a fundraising event was going on with respect to uh, a new emerging protocol or, or token, the distribution of total supply was such that a, a very large portion of that supply was allocated to the community, might be 50%. And the other 50% might go to early backers, VCs, the team, et cetera. And what we've seen happen over time is that 50% is dropped to more in the five to 10% range. Uh, I don't know exactly why that's happening, but it does seem as though that's starting to eat into the goal of decentralization. If the vast majority of the network is owned by uh, a couple hundred people, that starts to not look like a decentralized network. You'd much rather have tens of thousands of people own at least half of the network. That's definitely a challenge. And it's a challenge for the industry. It's a challenge for new protocol teams. It's, it's a challenge for the coinless to try to work out how we push ourselves into earlier in the process and ensure that that happens. I think one thing just to reflect on with respect to AngelList versus CoinList and, and with respect to traditional tech startup financing versus the, the, the process in a decentralized context and in, in a crypto context is that c- community really is the big difference here. In fundraising, in traditional startup companies, you don't necessarily need to have the community. It definitely helps. And I think Republic is, is proving that out a little bit too. But with crypto, you absolutely need to have a broad community of, of participants. Otherwise, these networks die. You need to have thousands of people you know, interacting with your protocol. I think that ends up being the big difference. And even though there's awesome VCs in crypto, that's something that VCs can't really do. They have a difficult time bringing tens of thousands of people into a network. They can lend their brand name. And I think that ends up helping quite a bit. But it's difficult for individual investors or individual firms to bring say 50,000 token holders into a community. That's what we do. There's definitely other platforms that, that do what we're doing, which is great, but that's what we and platforms like us do that the VCs cannot do. The viewpoint that you have on community influencing or impacting capital and funding a project also has an impact on how you then think about the development of CoinList. In terms of the products that you offer, you have other products, not just the issuance business. You have staking, you have lending. You recently launched Custody, which was announced. How much has your outlook on community being so crucial to these projects and therefore informed the type of constituents that you have on your platform influenced how you have decided to productize the platform and offer all different products to your users? It's massive, has an enormous influence. That's probably the biggest driver. Initially, when we started the company, we thought that we were just going to be running token sales and serving almost like a a niche group of investors that are participating in those sales. And as it's become increasingly important, the community is so critically central to the success of these teams. We've had to build out a whole bunch of services to support those communities and help them engage with these protocols. And our staking service is definitely uh, a piece of that. Trading is obviously important. Trading, I guess, for most centralized crypto platforms ends up being almost like table stakes. You need to have a trading platform or some ability to trade assets. But staking definitely was heavily influenced by the community aspect of what we've been doing, having thousands of token holders, not having an easy way to stake, making that easy for them is a very big deal. You mentioned custody, but actually more recently was the launch of our governance product. Governance ends up being such a big deal to these networks in terms of decentralization. And those governance procedures need to be run effectively. 
if they're not run effectively, you run the risk of having a small number of token holders take the entire protocol in, in some weird, nefarious direction. In order to avoid that, you need to have broad participation in governance events for most of these protocol teams, most of these networks. Because CoinList has a relationship with most of the community members that participated in the token sale, we can reach out to those community members when that network goes live, when voting events are run, and we can engage that community and make it easy for them to participate in governance. That's been a massive focus for us. And that's been a really big win for the protocol teams that we're working with. More recently, we've been supporting the Brain Trust team with some of their governance events and dramatically increased the level of participation in those events, something like 120x. That's something that we're really proud of. The need for us to try to help these communities engage with the networks once the networks go live, that is very much a core part of what drives a lot of our product decision making. On that point, how do you balance the idea of true decentralization and ownership for those token holders, i.e. the investors on CoinList, and almost providing governance as a service to these protocols, because you're the one aggregating all of these investors. You're another party in the mix. These platforms are not just doing a token offering or a DAO. You're the intermediary. How important is being the intermediary in that case, it, it seems more like Web 2.5 in a sense. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because we'll yeah. see if DAOs work in the way that I think we hope they may work. So I guess two-part question in the sense of how do you think about your role in enabling governance and fulfilling the promise of Web 3, number one? And number two, do you think that eventually CoinList has a DAO? Or you be, be able to offer services that look more like what some in Web3 see as the reason for having true decentralization? So the way that I look at it is that we operate as a bridge to a decentralized future. And we're assisting these communities in becoming more decentralized and assisting these individuals in engaging with these decentralized networks. I think it's fair to say that you know many decentralized networks struggle with broad usage and engagement. Certainly, there's a lot of activity with respect to asset trading. There's significantly less activity in terms of what kinds of use cases these networks are intended to support or fundamental operations for how these networks uh, exist, such as governance. We see our role as being that centralized bridge to a decentralized future. I guess that's kind of the web 2.5. And in thinking about the second part of your question, I think down the track, there's every opportunity that we start to decentralize ourselves and already looking at different ways that we could become more crypto native. I could, I could see a world where there is a decentralized coin list. And I'm not going to say that there's going to be a network or a token or anything like that. I don't want to say anything like that. This is not an announcement that there's going to be a coinless token. You have a legal background but... too. So I fully respect and understand that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not saying that, I'm not promising anything, but ultimately the mission is what's really important. The mission is that we're here to usher in this decentralized future. That ultimately is going to mean that CoinList is going to have to evolve in that direction also. 
that's part of how we, we think about things. It's interesting. We have debates internally sometimes around if we offer a specific service, isn't that going to cannibalize our revenue or isn't that going to cannibalize our user base? What I would say is that if the outcome furthers the mission, then absolutely we are down to be cannibalized in that way. You bring up a really interesting point because you serve as an on-ramp. The goal is to get millions and millions of consumers on-ramped into crypto, being this centralized bridge to a decentralized future, as you so eloquently put it. But yet, AngelList didn't start out as a decentralized platform. It didn't have a token. It wasn't a DAO. Maybe it could have been. But you've now seen a number of evolutions in technology. You mentioned the 90s. You were part of that in the early 2000s. You worked at Google early on. You worked at AngelList early on. How do those time periods that you worked in tech influence your view and the way you think about building CoinList as kind of this bridge between the traditional and centralized world of tech and the decentralized world of tech? Yeah, very much so. And when thinking about the evolution of AngelList, it did operate in a very centralized way early on where there was something akin to an investment committee that was reviewing all the potential deals that we could share with that community. Over time, that ended up evolving into a large community, actually more like an army of angel investors with their own communities. I think what Nivian Naval's vision there was to create a universe of angelists. And I think with Evloke at the helm now, that they're, they're definitely moving in that direction where you've got thousands of what they call GPs, but they're effectively angelist syndicate leads running their own mini angelist on the platform. Seeing that evolution from a, a purely centralized angelist where all the decisions are being made by a centralized angelist team, to see that get distributed across thousands of GPs uh, and then AngelList evolves to being the infrastructure, the operating system that powers those thousands of AngelList syndicates. That's a model that I think is an awesome model. There's no question that that's influencing how I'm thinking about things. There's an interesting balance you have to think about because you are a marketplace or a, a kind of intermediary of sorts, and you still are a company. You have investors who invest equity in your business. You may have a token in the future, but people are investing equity in your company. You generate revenues. I think it's always helpful and fascinating to break down the core tenets of an investment marketplace. You've been in a number of marketplace businesses and you innately understand the gears that make it work. And I think it's so fascinating for other founders or investors or people who are participants to hear how a marketplace operator thinks about things. I'd love to get into that. If we start with the supply side, that's the token projects, right? What's the value proposition for those projects and why would they want to partner with CoinList? <clears throat> this touches on you know some of what we were talking about earlier. As we talk about supply side and demand side, I'm, I'm basically going to be giving you the opposite sides of the same coin answer as we talk about both of those things. When we think about token issuers, when we think about the projects, again, it's very much about community. They're coming to us because they want a high quality community of token holders when they launch. Early on, when these teams started working with us, it was mainly because we had compliance infrastructure, and that was infrastructure that we had built at AngelList and had been battle-tested through all the work that we did there. So initially, the, the value proposition was more about work with us and we we're going to be able to handle compliance for your community, for your sale. 
over time, that's changed to being much more about community. The compliance piece is still there, but there is opportunity now for these teams to work with us based on the quality of that community. I keep saying community over and over again. Um, maybe just to dig into that a little bit more, we have an understanding of what users on that platform do, how it is they contribute positively to networks, whether it's through staking more so than trading, whether they run validator nodes, whether they're miners, whether they're developers, whether they participate in governance or not. So we have an understanding of how our user base contributes positively to the success of networks. And so when a team comes to us, they're asking for somewhat specific types of community members. Maybe they want users that have engaged in DeFi. Maybe they want users that have engaged in gaming. Maybe they want users that have greater likelihood to stake more so than anything else. And so we, we can take some of that information and try to craft as optimal as possible community for that team, uh, for that network, and drive that kind of optimized community into that network. And we do that through something that we call the priority queue for token sales. But to me, that's the biggest value that we offer these teams. And that's increasingly what they're telling us and, and what they're coming to us for. If we flip to the other side of the marketplace and the demand side, that's the investor side. What's the value prop for them? And how do you balance getting high quality projects, getting investors, having a lot of investors who may not get access to a project that they want, but then making sure they want to stay and don't get stale for the next project listing that you have. How do you think about all that? So, you know, the users want high quality offerings. They want high quality projects. A few years ago, the ask on the community side, on the investor side was, I don't want to get scammed. <laughs> so, that, so the bar was pretty low. And given the reputation that we had coming out of AngelList and given our focus on high quality issuance, I think that gave a lot of uh, crypto investors comfort that, okay, here's a team that's vetting projects, they're high quality projects. I don't feel like I'm getting scammed. That initially was the main value proposition, but over time it has been about the quality of the projects. The team works very hard to try to find the best new emerging protocols, the best new emerging teams. A lot of those teams come to us through our investor network. We get referred to some amazing projects. And then we spend a bunch of time analyzing those teams, analyzing the product itself, the network itself, what it does to, to the token economics mix. What's the what traction? Have they already built something? Are they already in testnet? Look at the background of the team and what schools they went to, what previous startups they worked at, what else they've done career-wise. And then obviously we look at social proof which is who's already invested, who are the advisors, who is tangentially associated with the project that gives it additional credibility. So we go through that process and we come out with, through our own version of investment committee, we come, up, come out with a thumbs up, thumbs down on, on whether we'll offer that project to our community. We go through a diligence process and keep the quality bar high and Hopefully our investors appreciate that and they seem to because they keep coming back. So now for perhaps the most fascinating question for a marketplace operator, which is the incentive question. You generate not all of your revenue, but a large portion from the transactional nature of listing high quality projects and generating revenues from the sales of those projects. Now, you mentioned something important as well, the quality of these projects as well. Sometimes those things with marketplaces can be an inherent conflict. The more projects you list, the more revenue you generate. But sometimes there's only a finite number of high quality projects. So quality erodes over time. And then the foundational piece of a marketplace is trust. 
on the investor side, making sure that your demand side constituents trust the quality that you have in terms of your underwriting diligence, et cetera. How do you balance those two things? So we're incentivized by more than just what happens in the token sales marketplace. I think this is really the way that we offset that problem is that we have multiple lines of business. We earn revenue from token sales, yes, but then we also earn revenue downstream through trading, lending, staking. So if the quality bar is not high at the token sale level, then those downstream lines of business suffer pretty significantly. If it's an absolute terrible project, terrible token, then there's high likelihood that post-launch, that token's going to fall off a cliff, in which case trading, lending, staking, the lines of business suffer significantly. By having those downstream lines of business, that ends up being, at least from an incentive standpoint, from a financial incentive standpoint, that ends up being the way that we manage to, to keep that quality bar high. We're not just going to run projects just for the sake of, and, and increase volume just for the sake of like cranking up the numbers over here when that's just going to screw us up across these other three lines of business. There's obviously also the missionary dimension to that too. If we're just constantly pumping out all kinds of garbage projects, then that's detrimental to the industry. That's detrimental to our, our brand. And we don't want to do those things. And I think crucially, you mentioned this earlier, early on, we're able to partner with such high quality projects that there's a brand halo around this, getting Filecoin, getting Solana, getting ICP. Those are big deals when it comes to the high quality projects that you have working with you and that association. So A, how did that happen? And B, how do you continue that tradition and trend of getting those types of projects to work with you? So I would say, by the way, with Solana, I don't think that there are many people in the community that impressed by Solana early on. <laughs> we kind of felt like we were one of the few teams, whether a, a VC firm or platform that was willing to, willing to work with those guys early on. It was only later that people realized that Anatoly and the team were doing some awesome stuff. So we're happy to be involved with those guys super early when nobody else was. But anyway, or at least few people were. But I think in terms of some of the other projects, frankly, a lot of it comes from AngelList and Naval. I think we had built a really good brand. Naval has a fantastic brand as an angel investor. When we actually started working with the Protocol Labs team, the Filecoin team, that came in through a relationship with Naval. And they had reached out to AngelList to see if there's a way that we could partner on running a compliant token sale using the accredited investor exemption. So that relationship started with Naval and AngelList. And then similarly with Blockstack and a lot of the other projects that we worked with in the early days, they came in through those investor relationships. ICP actually was with Polychain, Blockstack was Naval. A lot of those projects came in through those investor relationships that we built basically on the back of AngelList. So that was a massive, massive leg up for us. You mentioned something interesting when you talk about this, that, hey, we found this project early or we sourced this investment in a sense, similar to the way VCs do things. And to your credit, you may not be mentioned in the same breath as a foundation or a multi-coin when backing Solana early on, but effectively you were very much like a VC in that regard. How have you oriented the team to think like that, where you're in effect a venture capitalist, or at least have a venture capitalist mindset when picking projects, even if you're not a traditional VC in the sense of the word? Yeah, I think there's, there's probably a few ways. The main way is that most of the people on the team are crypto geeks, 
and they're just very into anything that's new and emerging in the space and critical of it. Just having that passion ends up being a big part of the way that that mindset gets pushed into the team. And we hire for that. We try to find people that have got the same level of passion and interest in all the best new emerging stuff. You have historically been on the crest of the wave in terms of thinking about evolution of crypto markets and where CoinList goes as a business. What's your ultimate vision for CoinList? You've added these other business lines. Where does this business go? I, I think in thinking about the vision, it's very much informed by how we got here and what our mission is. Accelerating the advancement of crypto and doing that by finding the best new emerging teams and helping them be successful. With, with that in mind, the ways that we try to help these teams be successful are evolving day in, day out. I can't say exactly where the industry is going to go. Like, who the hell knows where this industry is going? But we try to find new ways of helping the best new teams be successful and to do that at scale. Governance is one example of that. And there's more and more things that we're looking to do to help teams be successful. That definitely does not answer your question. I love doing what we're doing. I don't necessarily want to pivot us into a completely different business. I love like working with these teams at these early stages and, and many people on the, on the team do. And it's incredibly rewarding to see these teams go out there and be as successful as like a Solana is. It's, it's addictive. So, but yeah, I don't know exactly where that ends up. And being that centralized bridge to decentralized future, I mean, I think ultimately it'd be difficult to see us not having large portions of our business be decentralized. And I think maybe you were touching on it earlier. It's very possible that we use some form of DAO type structure to help us identify projects or even select which ones get listed on the platform. Uh, the listing process itself could be run as a decentralized platform. Increasingly, custody can be handled in a decentralized fashion. It definitely gets challenging with new emerging networks, but certainly can be possible. There are, of course, DEXs out there, so the trading piece can be decentralized. There are definitely decentralized staking platforms out there. Pretty much most of the components of what we do could take on some kind of decentralized flavor. And so I think that that's a very interesting direction for us. I'm not committing to saying that that's what we're going to do, but that's definitely a pretty interesting vision for us. Yeah, the fact that you are at the infrastructure layer means that it doesn't necessarily matter how crypto evolves as long as the industry continues to grow in terms of size and scale of assets in the space and people or participants in the space, individuals or institutions, because you grow with that in whichever way it grows. Yeah, Coinless is very much a bet on the industry. It's a bet that the future is not hundreds of tokens, it's hundreds of thousands of tokens. It's hundreds of thousands of projects. To date, a lot of those have been more at the L1, L2 layer or stage. But increasingly, we're seeing applications and I kind of see a world where you know, there are hundreds of thousands of applications out there, all of which are powered by some kind of uh, decentralized system, including incentives that are powered by tokens. Having worked in big tech at one of the fangs, Google, how do you think about this idea that there will be this large number of tokens projects. Right now, what we're seeing, and, and some people say that we have a small number of projects that will be winners. Maybe that's really at the, the layer mm -hmm. one foundational layer of the cake effectively. And yeah. maybe then there will be all these projects built on top as layer two or, or, or as at the application layer. 
But having had yeah. experience working at a Fang, do you see this similar story being written where there's going to be a few big winners like big tech and then maybe things get built on top? I think so. But just like in traditional tech, there's an extremely long tail. There's tens of thousands of companies out there that are solving all kinds of unique use cases. And yes, very much dominated by one massive player. And I think the same thing's going to happen in crypto. Who knows, maybe all of them are built on Ethereum, Solana, Avalanche. I mean, maybe it's possible that there's just a, a cluster of L1s that all these things are being built on, but there are going to be hundreds of thousands of them. Does that inform how you think about the types of projects that you end up working with? It may be harder to find and work with the next big layer one, but maybe you could work with the tens of thousands of projects that get built on top. Thinking of, of, about what's around the corner for us at CoinList, we're ramping up to launch a game vertical, which we're going to be launching in the next couple of months, which is focused very much on helping new decentralized you know, crypto-based games launch. I think over time, we end up verticalizing our marketplace. That bread and butter has definitely been large uh, L1s or infrastructure plays. But I think over time, we are more likely to go with the market, which is going to be each of these verticals, whether it's DeFi, gaming, whatever, and hundreds of applications within each of those verticals. We are starting to change gears to, to move in that direction. It's fascinating as you map out the, the vision of this and think about where CoinList could go. I always like to end this podcast asking every guest the same question. Maybe it's one of these ideas or thoughts. Maybe it's something totally different. But what is your favorite or most interesting alternative investment? Well, uh, how are you defining alternative? However you like to define it. Everything, everything that we're working on feels like it's... Alts are going mainstream, so it could be a mainstream asset too. The world's your oyster. Yeah, well, it's very difficult to look past the L1s that have been doing so well, like Solana. I think that really challenges and helps Ethereum evolve to have competitive networks that are building their own community and really pushing the boundaries of, of what the tech can do. That definitely goes back and informs how the Ethereum community, which is so vitally important, obviously, how that community evolves and improves. I love those plays. So yeah, have to go with Solana. It's definitely a, it's a bit of a cop-out, but I think, it's a, I think it's a good one. No, it's still so early days. Many of these layer ones, and, and, and you have the benefit of seeing all the activity around it. You see token projects probably come to you and say, hey, we're building on Solana. I want to be listed on CoinList because you worked with Solana so early on. You saw the development of Solana over the last few years after they listed on CoinList. And you saw how many people, which is interesting when we were talking about this, actually not a ton of people, but that was because you saw the evolution of CoinList platform. But now you see tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people want to participate in one of your projects. So you actually have a very interesting perspective on probably why Solana's ecosystem could be really interesting. Like we we're saying, there were like three, 350 people that won allocations in that Solana auction on CoinList. And uh... 350 very lucky people. <laughs> I'd say, I'd say so. You know, it's funny. I was talking to, to, maybe I was talking to you actually about this. You go to conferences and the number of people have come up to you and said, Hey, th thanks for uh, helping me get that allocation in the Solana auction. I swear there's been way more than 350 people who've said that to me. So you're like, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, the benefit is you are now giving tons of people access to 
some of these really promising projects in crypto. And that, that's why Coinless is such an exciting addition and a core piece, integral part of this crypto market infrastructure, which is only in its early days. That's right, man. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the Elko's Mainstream Podcast, Graham. Pleasure to have you. Michael, great to see you again. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Altgo's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day.